when you are accused and confronted with your sin, how do you respond? I think for most of us, and if we're honest, probably all of us in some measure, we get really, really defensive. Whoa, 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 who are you to call me out? I know all your sin too. Should I, should I tell your stories? And don't worry, I'm not pointing anybody specific, like all of you, right? Should, should I tell you your sin? Because I know how bad you are. Or we begin to make excuses. It wasn't really my fault. Like, think of all the other people and all the other problems, and I was just responding. I didn't want to do the wrong thing. Our natural response when we are confronted with sin is to dismiss it and to blame somebody else and to excuse it and say, that's not that big of a problem. Don't worry about it. Hi, this is Chris from The Point, a church where you can come as you are and you can text in your questions. You may not be sure what you believe about God, Jesus, faith, or the Bible, and that's okay, because faith is not about having it all figured out, and God is not waiting for you to put your life together before He'll connect with you. If you'd like to find out more about The Point, you can visit our website at thepointknox.com or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at The Point Knox. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are. Good morning. It's so good to see all of you here this morning. I'm glad you're here today. We are continuing our series called The Sting of Death, focusing on the reality that you and I in this world will have all kinds of pain. Sometimes we think that being a Christian means God will make everything okay, and we think that everything okay means that everything is right now the way it's supposed to be. But our belief in Christ does not mean that life will be easy or wonderful or that all of your pain will disappear, at least not yet. Our belief in Christ and the things he has done is that even though here and now death reigns, And sorrow and sickness and pain and anguish, these fill us day in and day out. Even still, God is good and his mercy endures forever. And even still, there will one day come a time when our grief ceases. So throughout this series, we have looked at grief that comes in a long-awaited, painful manner. The slow and steady process of watching a loved one die or chronic illness that will not seem to go away or relationships that no matter how hard you've tried continue to fall apart over and over and over again. Grief that comes over a long period of time of slow and painful suffering. And we have looked at grief that comes quickly. In times that should be joyful and wonderful, in times when there should be opportunity to celebrate, instead we're filled with pain and anguish. When a spouse leaves you suddenly, when a child dies unexpectedly, when a family member gets really, really sick out of nowhere, how do we grieve those things that should be joyful and now they're not? And today we get into what I believe is one of the tougher subjects of Scripture, one that often causes all kinds of questions and all kinds of confusion and all kinds of hurt. And so with today, I just want to once again remind you, if you have questions, please 
feel free to text them in. And if there's something you don't want anonymously and publicly addressed, but you want to talk about them privately, please fill out a connect card and let me know. Because today's specific grief we're talking about is how do you and I grieve when it's our fault? You see, not everything that happens bad in this world is because you deserve it. In fact, most things are not. That sudden death, that sickness, that relationship that fell apart, despite all your efforts, you may have done nothing to contribute to it. And we're instead a victim of this enemy called death. But sometimes you and I, we cause our own pain. We act in such a way that our actions hurt those whom we love, and they even hurt us, and we are torn apart, filled with grief and anguish by our actions. Then what? How do we grieve that kind of pain? Well, we're going to begin with the story of a man named David. Uh, David, you'll find, we'll start in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. If you want to follow along, it's on page 325 of those blue Bibles in your pews. If you're upstairs, the blue Bibles are along the walls on the outside. You can grab one and follow along, or feel free to use your phone and follow along there. 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you're not familiar with David, here's a little bit of his backstory. David was a lowly shepherd, the youngest of eight brothers. He wasn't that important in anybody's eyes. And God decides he's going to anoint a new king, one who is a man after his own heart. And God doesn't look on David's stature as the oldest or the wisest or the biggest or the strongest. No, he looks upon his heart and says, this is the one who will lead my people. And after all of his brothers get passed up, David is chosen. And so now David desires as king to honor the Lord for what he's done. And he desires to bless the Lord by building him a house, a temple, a place where all people in all times can know that's where God resides. And when David comes before the Lord with this prayer, God, I just want to honor you with everything in me. I want to build this house for other people to praise you. I want to see you lifted high. God flips the script. Here we go. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. Now this is God speaking to Nathan, who's going to in turn speak to David. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you, wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
David comes before the Lord with a genuine desire to honor and bless the Lord. And God flips the script. He says, David, you're not going to be the one blessing me. I'm going to bless you abundantly. I'm going to build for you a house where your descendant will sit on a throne forever. I'm going to make your name great in all the nations because here in this place you will have peace. Everything will go well for you. Your enemies will no longer come against you. I will provide for your every need. And your son's throne will never end. Imagine being David, coming through all kinds of hurdles and challenges. In fact, his process of becoming king wasn't all that smooth. God said, you're going to be the king. And the current king was like, well, I don't want to stop being the king. And multiple times tried to kill him. David's journey to get to where he was wasn't easy. He had all kinds of enemies from outside and enemies from inside, enemies around. He was surrounded by pain and God was faithful all the way through. And now God gives him this blessing. I am going to make your name great. Picture being David for a moment, sitting in this place of hearing God say such wonderful things. Your family will forever reign as king. What a beautiful promise. I imagine for David, he couldn't have been any higher in life, better off going, God is for me, who can be against me? But as the story unfolds, David as a man after God's own heart is by no means a perfect man. In fact, if we flip forward just a couple of chapters to chapter 11, the story unfolds a little further where David has seen great victory in battle. He's conquered many enemies, and now he's won so much that he doesn't have to go out to battle. He can send others to fight on his behalf while he stays in the safety and the comfort of his palace and his walls, and life is easy for him and not for others. And in this place, something bad happens. Chapter 11, verse 3. In verse 2, David sees a woman bathing on the roof and is intrigued by this woman bathing. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, it is, or is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house. In the next verse, we find out that she is now pregnant. Do you see what unfolded there? David sitting in his power and on his throne with a promise from God that everything will go well, that his throne will never be taken from him. And his comfortable, easy life gets really complacent. And rather than being out at war where he was supposed to be, leading the people, he's sitting back in the comfort of his palace and he sees a woman, it says she was purifying herself. She was doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he sees her and lusts after her and takes advantage of her. In the Hebrew, the way it's written here, David is implied all the way through as being the perpetrator, whereas Bathsheba all the way through is the victim. Not one who is willfully committing adultery, but one who is having another man in power thrust upon her and forcing himself to have as he pleases. And as this victim now, she's pregnant from a man who's not her husband. What should she do? 
What should a man after God's own heart do? Well, obviously make it right. And that's exactly what he doesn't do. In fact, if you're not familiar with the story, what happens next? David tries to cover it up with a grand scheme to bring her husband back from war so that he could then try to impregnate her and then he could look like the father and nobody would be any wiser. And as we read the story, we should be filled with all kinds of anger at David. How dare you do such a thing? How terrible of a man that you would act in this way. And yet, for many of us, when we sin, we, like David, keep it in secret. If nobody knows my sin, it'll be fine, right? If nobody sees just how broken I am, if I put on a happy face and I act like I've got it all together, if I just ignore the fact that I snapped at my children or was angry at the guy who cut me off or that I'm looking at things online, if I just don't tell anybody, it'll be okay. But David takes it a step further when he discovers that he can't make Uriah do anything to cover it up. When Uriah is an honorable man and refuses to go home and be with his wife because he knows the men at war are away from their wives, David does this next thing. It says in this next verse, here you go, uh, verse 15. In, In the letter, David writes, he writes to the commander of the army, and he writes this letter, he says, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. See, when covering up his sin was not enough, when it became apparent that eventually, at least within nine months, people would realize David had done something wrong, David's solution is let's cover it up further by killing the man who could otherwise expose my guilt. And he does just that. David covers up his sin by killing another man. You'd think that's that, the end of the story. We'll flip forward a little bit further. Beginning in chapter 12, there's a man named Nathan, the same man who spoke the promise and the blessing of God, is now told to speak against David. David's private sin, which he then took Bathsheba afterwards, he married her so that it could look like he did everything right. Oh, here's this poor widow and she's suffering. I'll care for her. And now look, she's pregnant. What a blessing from God. But Nathan sees through it all through the Lord. Chapter 12, here's what happens. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he bought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Nathan comes to David with this story. Picture a a wealthy man who has everything and a poor man who only has one little sheep, nothing more, nothing less. 
And the wealthy man is invited or has guests that are coming in and is looking to entertain and host these guests as one does. And rather than take his own property, his own sheep, which he has plenty of, he goes and he snatches up this one sheep. The only thing that this poor man had. And he uses that for the feast instead. Now Nathan tells this story and David, as a good and just king, responds like this. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. David hears this story, believing it to be a true story, and says, this rich man is the most vile. The way he would take something that is not his, the way he would steal from someone else, the way he would kill what isn't his. This man is evil and deserves death. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing because he had no pity. The law of Moses commanded that if you were to take something from somebody and steal from them, you should restore it fourfold. So not only is David irate and says this man's the lowest of the low, the scum of the earth, deserves to die. Also, he better make it right as God commands. Nathan pulls the rug out from underneath David. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the one who's done such a heinous thing. You are the one who has cheated and stolen and killed. You are this evil man. Now, Before we get into the rest of this, when you are accused and confronted with your sin, how do you respond? I think for most of us, and if we're honest, probably all of us in some measure, we get really, really defensive. Whoa, 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 who are you to call me out? I know all your sin too. Should I, should I tell your stories? And don't worry, I'm not pointing at anybody specific, like all of you, right? Should, should I tell you your sin? Because I know how bad you are. Or we begin to make excuses. It wasn't really my fault. Like think of all the other people and all the other problems and I was just responding. I didn't want to do the wrong thing. Our natural response when we are confronted with sin is to dismiss it and to blame somebody else and to excuse it and say, that's not that big of a problem. Don't worry about it. Nathan, he says, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. God confronts David and says, I gave you everything. And if everything wasn't enough, I would have given you even more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? to do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. 
And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David responds, I have sinned against the Lord. That's it. We don't get any other words from David. Confronted with such a big lie, such a deep evil, confronted with God himself saying, I'm going to take everything from you just as I've given it to you. David responds, I have sinned. Then it continues. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. David is confronted with his sin, with the fact that he did this great and horrible evil, and he immediately repents, I have sinned, what I did was wrong, and I know it. And God tells him he's going to be punished because of his sin. As a result of your sin, your child will die. Could you imagine hearing that from the Lord? Because of what you have done, your child will die. What a gut punch and a painful thing. Because even in sin, our children are a great blessing. Even in our brokenness, they are a source of great joy and love and hope. Our children are so good to us and for us. God says, this child will die because of your sin. Here's what happens. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David's sin created pain for others. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him. And he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that my child, the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him 
but he will not return to me. Now, before we go too deep into David's response, we have to address the elephant in the room. David's sin is the reason his child dies. When we deal with great pain and great sorrow, there is a natural desire to question, is this my fault? And most of the time, it's not. See, I believe for you and me that God and David poured out his wrath upon David's son, but for you and me, he's poured out his wrath upon his own son. In Christ, in Jesus, all of God's wrath is poured out. And so when we sin, the result of our sin is not that God punishes others or ourselves because of that sin. Your loss is probably not because God is punishing you. I believe when we have grief that comes from our sin, it's for two other reasons. You see, God bears all the wrath of our sin upon his son so that our children and our families don't need to. But there's still two other consequences of sin. There's a very natural consequence of sin. I'm trying to teach my children this, that when you do something, it can cause pain. Like if I tell him, do not touch a hot stove, and my kids touch the stove, they're not in pain because I'm mad or angry at them, but because the consequence of not listening to that command brings pain. Likewise, when you're texting and driving and distracted while driving and you crash your car, the natural consequence of not honoring authority or paying attention to what's in front of you is that you may get hurt or lose your license or something else happens. A natural consequence is the result of our actions with or without God's judgment. If you choose, either by choice or addiction, to continue to feed your addiction, if you find yourself continuing to fuel your lust and cheating on your spouse, you will have pain because our sin always brings pain. Our sin always, always kills what God has created and the life that he's giving. So when you sin and you're experiencing the pain of that sin, I want you to hear first and foremost, it is not God judging you for the things you've done wrong. But it is the result of the life he said, this is not what I have in store for you. Let me show you a better way. So our sinfulness and our pain, while David was judged accordingly, you and I are not. But then there's another type of consequence for our sin. And that is a civil consequence. If you break the law, it doesn't matter how much you repent, you might still go to jail. If you kill somebody, a judge might say you belong in prison. If you drive while you're drunk, a judge might say you can't ever drive again. There's a consequence, again, not God taking it from you and not a guaranteed thing, but instead a civil reality that we live in this world with laws seeking to protect. And When you and I sin, we may experience very natural and incredibly painful consequences. We may experience life-altering permanent civil consequences, 
but I believe wholly, you and I will not experience this wrath of God. See, David is cut to the core and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And when God pronounces his judgment, David does something completely countercultural. In fact, all of his servants are completely just utterly astonished. Why would you do this? See, when David is told your son will die and his son gets sick, David begins to weep and to fast and to take on all the external signs of an internal transformation. God, please spare my son. Be gracious and merciful to him. Please remember your promises and your faithfulness that you have said my lineage will sit on a throne forever. Please remember. And for seven days, David does everything he can to cry out to God, desperate for God to change the outcome of what's coming. God doesn't. David doesn't get angry with God and blame God. How dare you? He doesn't begin to question, are you even truly good, God? Are you really worth worshiping? No, David sees the outcome of his sin and he accepts it. God, you are good and gracious anyway. And he washes his face and he changes his clothes and he goes about business as usual. And when everybody's astonished by that, David says this, while he was still alive, who knows whether the Lord would be gracious to me. But now he's dead. Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. See, even there in his grief at the end, with his child dead, David declares a great promise. Look, I will be reunited with this child in the future. I will go to this child because I, like this child, will one day die. But I will be reunited in a life that is everlasting and does not cease. So what can I do about it? In our sinfulness, I think there's a few things that we can learn from David for how do we grieve when our sin hurts. When the pain you're feeling is your fault, what should you do? First, admit your sin. When the pain you are feeling is truly your fault, accept responsibility. I am guilty of these things. I have wronged my neighbor. I have wronged my spouse. I have wronged the Lord, and I am guilty. There's a practice we have in the church that in the Lutheran church is often undervalued, and I think it's one of the healthiest things you and I can actually do. It's a practice that Catholics do all the time that we as Lutherans do very differently. It's called confession and absolution. We do it here on Sunday mornings regularly where we all confess together that we're sinful and then we receive forgiveness from God. But did you know you can do that privately? Like you can bear all the weight of your sin and your guilt and your shame and you can come and say, I would like to confess to the Lord. And the difference between how we as Lutherans do it and how Catholics do it if you grew up in the Catholic Church and this was part of your life, when you confess, what happens next? Okay, go and do these things to prove that you're repentant. Pray these prayers, make amends with this person, go and make it all right. But for us, what happens when we confess our sin? You are forgiven. And that's the end of it. There's no need to go and do anything 
God will lead you in what's next. Be forgiven. I had a professor in seminary who regularly would say that our jobs as pastors boils down to one thing and one thing only. Forgive the sins of sinful people. And after Eden was born, she came suddenly a little bit early. She was in the NICU. I was really stressed. I got really behind in all my coursework. So far behind in my coursework that I didn't turn in the biggest assignment of the quarter at the end of the semester. I didn't turn it in two weeks after the semester ended as we started the next semester. And he kindly emailed me and said, you have an incomplete grade. If you do not turn this in in the next six weeks, you will fail. And if you fail, you will not become a pastor. Five weeks later, I turned it in. And I felt incredibly guilty because I knew I could have turned it in sooner, but I just kept putting it off. I just kept waiting. And so I told this professor, I said, I would like to come to your office and talk to you. I said, okay. So an hour before class, I went into his office and I had this big, long speech prepared of all my guilt. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. That was disrespectful. I should have done. Here's all my shame and here's all my guilt. And I got like three sentences in to all of the things I wanted to say. And as soon as I said, I'm really sorry what I did was wrong, I didn't even like tell any more of the things I had planned. He looked at me and said, Adam, I forgive you for all of your sin. Is there anything else you want to talk about? And I was caught completely off guard. Like, I mean, I came with a long list. Like, don't I have to prove to you that I'm sorry? And I said, well, I, I don't know. Is there anything else to talk about? He said, I don't think so. I'll see you in class. And that was that. The end of it. You see, when you and I confess our sin, there's a beautiful freedom that comes from hearing the words, I forgive you. You are forgiven. David confesses to God, I have sinned against the Lord, and then cries out for forgiveness. God, would you restore and be gracious to me by saving my child? Now, when you confess your sins, as you deal with the natural and the civil consequences of your sins, there is no promise that a judge in this world will forgive you. You might be found guilty. There is no promise that the hand that you could have gotten burned touching the hot stove will touch the hot stove and not get burned. Those natural consequences, those civil consequences still may happen. But there is this promise in Scripture that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us all of our sins. And so when we are confronted with the pain of our sin. We accept responsibility and we confess. And then comes this beautiful part of David's. We plead for grace and mercy until that grace and mercy is no longer available. And we wash our face and move on. Do you have relationships in your world that have fallen apart because of your sin? Seek forgiveness and do everything you can to restore that relationship. And when there's nothing left for you to do, trust in God that in the end, when it's all said and done, even the sorrow and the pain and the grief caused by your sin, He will one day restore and wipe away even those tears. And in Christ, one day we too will be reunited even with those who right now we're separated from by the weight of our sin. 
And we will be reunited in perfect peace and unity and love. So we accept responsibility. We confess our sin. We plead to God for grace and mercy. And then we trust in His promises. He will always, always be faithful and forgive you all of your sins. Will you pray with me? God, we come before you today. And like David, we often sin and try to hide our sin and keep it secret and private and cover it up with our shame and our guilt and in doing so, we make it even worse. God, may we be like David with a heart after you. When confronted with our sin, may we repent. May we confess all that we have done. And may we trust in your promise that you forgive us. May we plead with you for grace and mercy as long as it may be possible. God, whatever the outcome of our sin, may we trust that you in Christ have made it all right. And one day in your righteousness, we will stand together reunited with those whom we have wronged and those who have wronged us. And we will be restored. All for your glory. Amen. If at any point you would like to receive private confession and absolution, let me just give you a couple of pointers on how it works. I'm going to ask you in that private setting if there's anything burdening your heart, any guilt or shame or regret you'd like to confess. I'm going to let you know that everything you share is 100% confidential. Nobody else will ever be told it. With one exception, if you or somebody else is in imminent physical danger, I have an obligation to try and help prevent that danger. Everything else will be entirely private. And even that, I will let you know, here's my plan of how to help you come receive this help. It won't be private and something secret. And then you will confess whatever you feel guilty of. And after you're done, I will ask one simple question. Is there anything else you'd like to confess? And if the answer is no, great. If the answer is yes, then feel free to confess it. And then I'll tell you this. Look in my eyes and hear these words. I forgive you. All of your sin. I promise you, when you are feeling guilt and shame and regret, nothing will be more a breath of fresh air, a drink of cool water than hearing those words every time. That's it. If you'd like to do that, please reach out at any point. I would gladly fill my week every week, all week long, with just that. Because it does change everything. As we continue our worship, we are going to continue by collecting an offering. In this place, we collect an offering as an act of trusting God with everything He's provided, including our finances. And so we believe in this place that it's not obligatory, nobody needs to give, but for every one of us, as we give, we begin to see God as the provider of everything we have. And so if you would like to partner with us in giving and trust in Him through that, you can do so with cash or check uh, in the boxes as you exit today, or you can do so online at thepointknox.com by clicking the little teal button in the bottom corner. However you give and whatever you give, know this. We don't give to get God's love, but because we already have it. 
Thank you. I always love it when Emily wears her cat dad hat. It just <laughs> cracks me up. Well, every week we invite your questions, and I'll do my best to respond to them. Uh, Caitlin, what questions came in today? Uh, so it says, why is Matthew 17, 21 omitted from most Bibles? I don't know. I have no idea what Matthew 17, 21 says. If anybody wants to look it up real quick, I'll give you my best shot. Uh, the, the shortest answer is probably because we have thousands and thousands of really, really old manuscripts. And so there are some things that show up in manuscripts that are like 1,400 years old that don't show up in manuscripts that are 1,800 years old. And so sometimes if things don't show up in a bunch of the really old ones, they say, well, maybe that wasn't original and they exclude it. Uh, other times, because the verse marks are all man-made and not actually from God, uh, what is, you know, verse 21 might just be lumped into verse 20 in other uh, translations. So those would be my two guesses, but I'd have to read 1721 to know more. Okay, the next one says, when we have daily, when we have daily prayed for surrender to God's plan, while being in the midst of the biggest storm and trial we have ever faced, what else can be done to help? Is there a suggestion that would make would help make the healing move forward. When we are in the middle of a great storm and desperately seeking God to bring healing, what can help? Uh, I believe community. Uh, walking through our pain alone is the most unbearable kind of pain. So let's together be people who can come alongside you, who you can feel safe to say, I'm hurting, can I not be okay right now? And we're not going to have all the answers and know how to fix things, but we can be there with you and for you. Uh, so community would be a big thing. I'd say another thing when you're going through all kinds of great pain. Seek God's word. God offers all kinds of comfort through his word. Like even in this story of David, David says, look, I know that I will be reunited with this child. In God's word, we can find peace in troubled times. And third, I would say, after talking to people, having a community around you to support you, after being in God's word, um, I would say that it's really important to just be honest and practice lamenting. Like all of your hurt and all of your pain, did you know that you can tell God? And you can be angry with him and you can accuse him of things and you can, you can call him out for things and he's big enough to handle it. And lamenting that type of prayer always ends with some kind of hope. God, even through all of this, I trust you. And so if you want to learn more about practicing lament, I'd love to help. Okay, the next one says, I know that we should take everything to God in prayer. I also know that one Peter says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. When I'm praying to God, can the devil hear me? Can he take my trials and pain that I'm lifting up to God and use them against me? Ooh, uh, those are two different questions. Can he hear you? Well, depends. Uh, if you're praying in your mind, certainly not, because the devil can't read your mind. Which is also why anytime you're praying against the devil, I encourage you to pray out loud because he can't hear you otherwise. So if you're speaking against him, like, hey, go away. This isn't something I'm doing. Well, then let him know that. Say it out loud. Um, so he can't read your mind. But if you're praying, can he use those things against you? I, I don't know. It's a great question for point leftovers. How's that sound? Um, my, my shortened answer, I'll give you a longer one in point leftovers, is he certainly could, but God is greater. So keep praying anyway. And I'll dive into that question and later this week post a video on Facebook about a little bit more, um, can the devil use your prayers against you? 
Okay, the last question says, in-person event at the Empty Cup this year anytime soon? We have no plans to do an in-person event at the Empty Cup this year. We used to do a lot of events there prior to God blessing us with this space to meet in. Uh, we still bless the Empty Cup. In fact, I was just there earlier this week uh, meeting with and, and talking to the, the owner and the one who runs it. We love what they do. It's a coffee shop that uses their proceeds to support adoption and foster care grants and all of the change that we collected in the month of February, we donated to them. So we love them, we celebrate them, and we have no plans to do any event at their space in this calendar year. So is that it? Well, excellent. As always, you're, you can text in any question anytime all week long, and I will do my best to respond to them either the following Sunday or midweek online. Uh, receive this blessing before you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.